Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So at the moment I'm working with a beautiful hand-dyed lace mohair. Um, I'm starting on a little sleeve, and I'm working in the round. So I'm in Norwich, which, as I discovered on the train ride here, is a city whose wealth was historically built on the woolen fabrics industry. Pulling another loop to make a sleeve, I'll probably have to do this a few, like, thousand times, really, for a few hundred rows. A bit of a coincidence, given that I've come to visit 24-year-old knit and crochet designer Evia. Yarn is beautiful. It's super fuzzy, super fine, and creates this lovely cobweb. And Evia's passion for knitwear began in the same way many of our own hobbies began, back in the pandemic. I had so much time on my hands. I was job hunting. It's really awful. And I had a single crochet hook and a bunch of like leftover thrifted yarn. And I just started crocheting for like 12 hours a day. So then I started um, my little Instagram account, totally meant to just show off what I was making for fun. Um, and then I've maintained the addiction, basically. What started as a hobby has turned into a fully-fledged knitwear label under the name Loopy Studio. Almost by accident, it seems, by the way Evia tells it. So I made the account very end of April. 2021. Um, 2021, yeah. I started doing, like, sample sales or drops in June, July, because I had stacks of things that I'd made. I just was getting more and more followers, like more of my pieces were doing well on social media. And there was quite a demand for all of my pieces and then I started charging more reflective of the time that I would put mm. into it. Evia is earning some money from Loopy Studios, but at the moment she's doing all of that work alongside her full-time job. It's got to the point where she wants to take her side hustle to the next level. So, how can she turn her part-time knitting into her main hustle? Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor. Maybe you've got a side hustle that you get more enjoyment from than your main job. Or perhaps you've really got into a hobby and are thinking you could start earning a bit of extra income on the side. Well, in this episode, we will be talking about how to scale up your side hustle without losing the love for what you are doing. We'll be getting a small business starter pack from accountant and business finance mentor Deborah Edwards, plus how to spend it editor Joe Ellison will be giving her fashion insight into where Evia's knitwear could go next. But first, let's hear more from Evia. This is this 
hand-spun, hand-dyed Japanese wool that's just like ridiculously expensive. This business began in her bedroom in a shared house in Norwich, where she's talking me through a very neatly organised but sizable pile of different boxes of yarns. We have got some real vintage pieces here. There are all kinds of pastel shades, bobbly yarns, different textures, basically every type of wool you could possibly imagine. I just really like collecting these interesting little bits, like this stuff is incredible. This is hand-dyed, blue-faced luster wool. I was going to say, that, um, that looks like a poodle yeah. um, that's been clipped. Look at those colours and those curls. All of the yarns Evia uses in her products are second-hand, and this is a big part of what she feels makes her brand unique. But it also means that sourcing materials is pretty time-consuming. It takes a long time to source it, for sure. This is about a year's worth of an eBay addiction, I would say. Evia is a full-time carer for people with learning disabilities. The rest of her time, she spends knitting in pubs and cafes around Norwich but she's looking to crank it up a notch. So I am planning on reducing my hours at my Mm full-time job, which will give me much more time to kind of think about Loopy Studio and get into the finances a bit more, maybe start working with an accountant and just get things up to a level where it's a bit easier for me to manage and it feels less like I'm just doing it in the hours that I have when I'm like running between night shifts. Her main limitation right now with Loopy Studios is time. Every couple of months when she has enough stock, she does a drop releasing a batch of products for sale on her website. I think on the first one, I made probably like 1,500, the next one closer to 2,000, and this last one, like around 3,000. And those are just for the drops. And so I think to be able to make more consistently uh, the 2,000, I'd need to have more time to knit, to create more pieces. But when she does a drop, she has to take annual leave from her job to get it all done. And it just takes so long. Like whenever I do a drop, it'll be like days of taking pictures, days of listing. And then like after that, packing and shipping will be another two or three days of like full work as well. So it really takes up a lot of time. And then there's all the other finishing touches. I don't find it very exciting to take photos of things I've already made or do all of the labels or sew in the labels. There's just so many little bits and bobs that I have to do to make it appear like a professional piece that somebody is willing to pay that sort of money for. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, I do work full time as well. I just don't have the bandwidth to also be able to kind of supervise somebody or bring somebody else on. Mm -hmm. I I have to just kind of keep it to myself. Basically, Evia just wants to be knitting. That's the bit she is passionate about. But for all of the hours she's putting in, is it paying off? Let's break it down, starting with the cost of her raw materials. If I'm making, say, a knitted jumper, the material cost will probably be around like 10 to 20 pounds. The time it takes me to source those materials, that would probably be a good hour and a half, two hours of scrolling through the depths of eBay to find somebody that's selling off this vintage yarn. Then there's the time spent knitting and listing each item. It will take me probably between like 18 to 20 hours plus to knit a garment, another hour to probably finish it. Um, shipping and packaging and writing a nice little note, doing a nice little bow and printing out my labels and everything. Photographing it. And yes, photographing it, of course. That and listing it on my website with very clear sizing, material composition and posting it on Instagram, of course, to advertise it. That's another good few hours. 
And finally, there's the time and cost spent sending each item off to buyers. That's a good half hour per piece, which is, it seems ridiculous, but it just takes so long to do it by myself and to keep track of everything. So we're looking at a good, like, 25, 30 hours for a garment that I'm probably listing for around £200. Um, So I'm very much charging myself below minimum wage in terms of my time. In my view, if Evie is paying herself less than the minimum wage, she will need to charge more for her pieces to make this a viable main hustle. But we'll see what the experts have to say about that in a few minutes. Evie has kind of stumbled into the fashion industry. She used to work for a tech startup. In fact, she doesn't even really consider herself to be a fashion designer. And as a newbie to the fashion industry, she's found some of its quirks pretty surprising. So the fashion world is very interesting and I have learned a lot about it in the last year. There's a lot of stylists out there that dress celebrities. And so Mm. this is probably like my most common message is that people want my clothes for free to put on a celebrity. Mm. But it's so much hassle for me to send these things off for free just for exposure, just so somebody can wear them once. And they do return. What's in it for you? Exposure. But how does that translate into spondulix? <laughs> I don't think it really does. And I think that the whole exposure thing is just absolute BS, really. I just don't mm. think it's worth it at all. And I think if I had more time, like if I wasn't also working 40 hours a week, I would be very happy to lend a few more bits out. Evie, you found out so much in the past year just by <laughs> learning by doing. For other people who are side hustling, listening to the podcast... What are the things that you know now that you wish you'd known back at the beginning? So I would definitely say it's worth it to make a website and have a way to like accept payments, not through DMs. Just get that website over and done with as soon as possible because it's been so much easier to track my finances, track my visitors, and not have to be searching through direct messages for random people that had asked for a commission. So like website for sure. And definitely get your branding and like the tags that you use ready to go from the start, like have a bit of consistency because it increases your growth on social media so much. I mean, you've gone from hardly any social media followers to like nearly 40,000 now, Was it basically within the space of a year. How were you able to grow your online presence so quickly? So for me, I found that there were a few pieces that I made that got onto Instagram's explore page pretty rapidly. I kind of had maybe about 500 followers and I was engaging with other creators in the community a lot. So we all kind of formed this nice little network of fellow crocheters who all supported each other's work and all shared each other's work. And I think by being really consistent with your engagement with Instagram, it kind of feeds the algorithm and tells the algorithm that your content is high value. Um, And being able to kind of trick it by using all the same tags, doing the things that it wants you to do, like sharing to your stories or writing um, the accessible text, the alt text. So you've come a really long way in a year, transforming this from a hobby to a startup. Where do you think you might be in another year or even in three or four years? So definitely one of my biggest goals for Loopy Studio is like, to be able to make some money off of it and be able to have it as something that I spend a lot of time on but without losing the love for it at all. The love and the passion for knitting and crocheting and just fibres in general is so important for me. I think I'd like to be making at least like £2,000 a month from my business, which 
doesn't seem like that much. I'd love to be able to like kind of make a little bit more through some different streams and stuff. Um, but I am really looking forward to bringing in maybe other people to do some production on some small pieces uh, that I can sell through my site or creating techniques and pattern booklets and stuff um, and designing those, maybe printing them, selling them and kind of diversifying what I can offer because there is such a demand for tutorials for other fellow crafters, like knitters and crocheters. What kind of expert advice ideally would you be looking to, to get from the podcast experts? So one thing that I really wish I had uh, when I was starting is some sort of small business or side hustle starter pack, like on the financial side, like things that I really need to be aware of, the best practices with managing my finances, managing the business accounts. It would be so good to just have an expert kind of list their key advice and key points to watch out for on the finance side. And then from the growing and scaling a fashion business point of view, is there anything any expert help in that area that you would be interested in? I think it would be quite interesting to see if somebody has like advice about growing and scaling something that should feel very individual. On the train back from Norwich, I thought about who would be best to advise Evia and other keen side hustlers on how to take the next step. Deborah Edwards is a perfect fit. She runs accountancy and business mentoring firm Raised Up Finance. And I'm a chartered accountant and business finance mentor and coach. I've been working with small businesses for the last 20 years, growing ambitious entrepreneurs from, from startup to sometimes multi-million pound companies. For anyone listening who is thinking of monetizing their hobby, Deborah has a few key pieces of advice. First, think about timing. Can you fit this around your other work commitments? And second, think about passive and active income streams. Some income streams require you do the work fundamentally selling time for money, which if you're knitting and producing a jumper, that's what you're doing. But then you want to develop a passive income, you would then sell your knitwear design patterns online. Then that's a really good way of being able to maintain both a, a day job and a hustle. Third, you need to be clued up on tax. So particularly just say you're earning over £50,000 in your day job and you're a sole trader, then any profit that you make is going to have quite a hefty tax rate on it. So over 40% and then national insurance on top. Plus, there's the different types of VAT, depending on the type of product you are selling and where. Finally, decide on your trading structure, sole trader versus limited company. You could keep it in a limited company where the tax rates are lower and the thresholds are much, much higher. You ring fence, if you like, the profit away from your personal and you don't go into those higher rate tax bands. Deborah, how can an accountant be helpful to people looking to scale up a side hustle? I think the thing that keeps accountants one step ahead, perhaps, of other business consultants, for example, somebody who might be looking into going into online selling, so, so developing a passive income, having that knowledge of particular tax rules that apply. And, and so, for example, just say Evia, she obviously produces her, her knitwear at the moment, but wanted to make her knitwear patterns available online, selling them as a digital product. You would want an accountant who had knowledge 
of VATs for digital services, which actually throws all the other VAT rules out the window, particularly when you end up by its very nature of selling all over the world. So you want a good combination of business strategic advice, as well as understanding of tax tax laws and rules. How can people listening really judge if their side hustle is possible to scale up in, into a main hustle? How would you go about exploring that? First of all, I think it begins with a bit of soul searching. So you need to have a good understanding of yourself as a character. Being a self-employed person is very different from being employed. It's a very different mindset, being more vulnerable, I guess, to peaks and troughs in, in your income. And then it's a, it's a case really of thinking about the size of the market, thinking about the prices that people are prepared to pay. And, and one thing that we see quite commonly in businesses at this level is undervaluing the services. And I think with Evia, there's a, you know, from everything that I've learned about her, there's a really exciting opportunity here for her to grow the business, not necessarily by increasing output, but by going into a slightly different market, perhaps, and increasing her prices. Let's talk about pricing then. I mean, do you have advice for how people should price their goods? So, don't think, oh, because it's my business and I'm doing it, you know, for free, if you like. Have an hourly rate. Now, when you price, obviously, you need to understand what your break even is. So these costs and considering your time as a cost. And I would say that certainly it should be no less than sort of 20, 25 pounds an hour. It should be added up to see what the minimum level of the price should be. Looking at Evia's, there is a real market for these unique designer items. Evia, I would consider increasing your prices by quite literally sticking a zero on the end and looking around and seeing what other people have been doing as I have. And I think you could have a very exciting business there without falling out of love with knitting itself. Okay, so I have to say... As much as I love Evia's designs, and as much as I would wear one of her distressed knitwear jumpers were I um, younger and substantially slimmer, £2,000 for a jumper instead of 200 I mean, if you put a zero on the end, I mean, do you really think she could get that? From what I understand about the interest that Evia has had, and then I did a little bit of snooping around on the internet and seeing what products like Heavier's were attracting, I don't think it's completely out of the realms of possibilities for her to be able to command those kind of prices. Sometimes we have beliefs that we can't charge as much because we wouldn't necessarily be in a position to pay for those things ourselves. And so we can project our price constraints onto other people. Each time she does a drop, she could just be quickly nudging her prices up and seeing at what point does demand start to wane. Now, balancing the creative process with the financial one is hard for creative people, but how can they make money doing what they love without falling out of love with doing what they do? I think that this is where the playing with the price comes in. I always say in business, we wear three hats. You do your technical work, which for Evia would be her, her knitwear that she loves. You become a manager and you become an entrepreneur. So particularly if she were then to use the services of other knitters to help her produce, and she becomes a manager, she becomes an employer, she becomes somebody who has to deal with managing people. And so the game changes significantly and really moves away from doing what what she loves. So listening to everything and understanding where Evia is coming from, I would really suggest 
and I can say this because she's in that space where she's very unique. She's got a great following and she's already had interest from the right places. The price point in the first instance is where I would suggest she goes to build her business without falling out of love with knitting. The next person I wanted to speak to has got decades of experience as a fashion journalist and a really good understanding of the industry. Joe Ellison is the editor of the FT's How to Spend It magazine. We do a lot of fashion style, travel, food, all the kind of good things in life. Now, Joe, in your day job, you obviously see an awful lot of fashion websites. And I asked you to have a look at Evie's creations. What did you make of them? Um, they struck me as very innovative. And also she uses lots of upcycled materials, which I think is very kind of of the moment. Now, she's contacted by a lot of celebrity stylists via the Instagram platform saying, could we have a piece for free? We'll give you the exposure, but we're not going to pay for it. I mean, this phenomenon of doing things for the exposure, is that something you're, you're familiar with? Is the fashion industry rife with young designers being requested to do stuff for free? I mean, I think in the old days, it would probably be considered quite an honour to be request, like to have a celebrity stylist request a piece of yours to be worn at a huge event where there might be millions of eyeballs on you. I would have thought exposure, depending on who it is, can be invaluable. I mean, numerous people that I've spoken to um, in the industry have said that one sighting or one piece on the right person can shift a lot of product. But similarly, I guess you don't want to get exposed. And I think her experience, as, as you were saying, is that she hadn't seen a kind of massive amount of conversion. So in the event that she had kind of placed it in some sort of fashion editorial, she hadn't necessarily seen the sales as an outcome. But in terms of getting your name out there and people knowing who you, what you are and what you're doing, I, I would still say do it to, to, a, to a degree, as long as it's not costing you money. What do you think are the dangers facing a small designer like Evia? So I would say probably the biggest danger for your designer now looking forward is like, how do you protect the kind of integrity of what you're doing and the kind of bespoke nature of it, but also move forward? You've kind of got to evolve so that you're producing something else that's new. And that is the kind of terrible trap that I think most designers fall into because they can create quite a kind of commercially strong and viable product people love it they get quite a lot of consumers but a the consumer moves on and b someone else steals the design and copies it that's where your kind of greatest weaknesses are i think as an instagram designer because it tends to be that you're kind of focused on one particular strength like this is kind of you know recycled knitwear and it's quite a specific aesthetic how does she build that out now as a brand it's quite difficult and how could she start to bring in more revenue streams well, I think building a community around your brand is amazingly important and it's actually probably um, as useful as anything. And I think that's what a lot of the younger designers or people who have grown up with social media have begun to understand that it's not just about product, it's also about engagement and a broader conversation. And I think diversifying into some other kind of smaller, um, as you say, more deliverable, slightly less kind of time-consuming thing, like whatever accessory it might be, is also another brilliant kind of revenue stream because it just gives you a bit more freedom. And presumably, it's her and her knitting needles at the moment. And at some point, she's going to want to bring in maybe a few more people to help. She could also produce patterns and have other people knit the designs. Now, you've been in the fashion industry for many years. I don't see that as kind of diluting her brand in any way because it's not physically her knitting every stitch. 
Oh, God, no. No, no. I mean, you need to have support. And no one's expecting anybody to kind of do all the kind of fulfill all the kind of features or obligations of a brand. I think a lot of designers get sort of, you know, they start a business and then they kind of get sucked into the kind of financial obligations that come with that. And yeah, they can spend their whole life at the post office. And I suppose at some point the RSI kicks in and you can't actually possibly generate as much knitting as you might want to. Or indeed, you might fall out of love with it a bit. There's no harm in someone else doing it as well, as long as they're using the same methods and it's still kind of authentic to the process that you kind of initially said you were trying to build. Do you have any other ideas based on your journalistic experience of how Evia, as a young designer, could think about growing her business? Young designers will quite often hook up with someone, um, a bigger brand, who've got slightly bigger, um, like not only only revenue, but they've got resources so that you can kind of pull on their expertise or you can use something that they've got. In your opinion, as the editor of How to Spend It, do you think she's charging enough for the pieces that she's selling? given that she's spending up to 35 hours of labour on each jumper. Yeah, so kind of as a parameter, it's quite an interesting, it's quite an interesting kind of point of reference. Her pricing is, it, it's very precarious, isn't it? And I think probably she's she's probably got it about right. I think £250 used to be kind of typically the point at which you tip into kind of a luxury purchase where no one will go back. So she's right underneath that kind of threshold where you know, people are really, really thinking very hard about it before they buy it. Um, but And as you say, she produces quite unique pieces so that what you have, what she's not necessarily getting is a return custom. Like, how many of those pieces are you going to want to buy? So, I mean, I would always advise people to go up a little bit in price. I mean, that's an awful lot of labour for, like, 200 quid. Well, a lot of really great advice and tips there for Evia to unravel. But what did she make of what Deborah and Joe had to say? There were loads of very interesting points, especially about having an accountant to deal with some of the tax laws around the digital selling. That's something that I haven't even begun to look into. And so I think I definitely need to consult with an accountant for the more intricate natures of that sort of thing. I've got to ask you, Deborah reckons you could charge £2,000 for one of your jumpers. Could you see that happening? I have a very hard time seeing that happening. I I think it would be very exciting for me to pursue the luxury market a little bit more, like maybe try and make some statement maxi dresses, the sort of thing you might see on a red carpet, but with a knitted twist um, and charging a higher price point for that. But I would really struggle to imagine my kind of everyday wear jumpers going for that much. Because um, I, I like the idea of clothes that you're supposed to wear as well, not things that sit in a, a closet, even though I, I would also like to think of my items as kind of wearable art. But yeah, I think 2000 oof, that's a that's a lot, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but, I mean, Jo Ellison, editor of How to Spend It, I mean, she thinks that you could definitely get away with charging a bit more, but she also really likes your designs. I mean, it must be great to hear that. Yeah, it's quite a compliment. I think I'll definitely go through and make a spreadsheet on how much time I'm actually spending on each of these pieces and try and pay myself a bit higher of a wage rather than the bare minimum. I know there are a lot of other designers out there, especially in the bigger design houses that are charging thousands for their knitwear, but then even smaller designers like myself that are charging like 800 to 1,000 for very time uh, intensive pieces. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Now, Joe felt that the biggest dangers for young designers, especially those who are advertising products on Instagram, is having their ideas stolen and, and copied more cheaply. But also that 
pressure constantly to produce something that's new because the fashion world moves on. What did you make of of those comments? Yeah, I think it is a very interesting point. And I definitely have seen this play out with a lot of designers that I follow or ones that I very much respect. Um, I am not sure if it applies as much to me specifically just by the nature of my designs. I only do one-off pieces. So I'm not really relying on like the statement piece of the season that people will see all over their feeds and then get sick of it and never want to see or support that again. As a result of coming on Money Clinic podcast, do you think you'll be doing anything differently going forward? Yes, definitely. I think, well, so there's some very good news, which is that I've finally, finally been able to reduce my hours a little bit at work um, over the good. next month or so. Yeah, so I'll only be working weekends. I'll have five straight days during the week where I can focus on doing more drops, uh, organizing things a little bit better so it doesn't feel like I'm just doing things in the late evenings after I get home from work. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about the financial side of things. Well, thank you so much for coming on Money Clinic. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and it's been so good to hear from Deborah and Joe as well. I feel rather enlightened or at least uh, slightly more focused. That's it for Money Clinic this week, and we hope you like what you've heard. If you did, spread the word and leave us a review. And if you would like to chat with me on a future episode of the show, get in touch. You can email me. Our address is money at ft.com or DM me on Twitter, Instagram or TikTok. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced and edited in London by Persis Love. Josh Gabert Doyon was the producer. Our executive producer is Manuela Saragosa. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner and the original music is by Metaphor Music. And finally, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print over and done with. See you back here soon. Goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.